0: Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now onto this month's event podcast.
1: All right, let's get started. This is startup grind. So we have a conversation with somebody important to the startup ecosystem an entrepreneur, investor, advisor. Uh, I'm Ryan Frederick. I run the Columbus chapter. I also am a partner at AWH. We're a digital products firm. We help clients build um, great digital products. Alex Brown is here from Dickinson Wright. He's a sponsor. Daryl Tanner is here from King Memory, a sponsor. GBQ is a sponsor. Heartland Banks a sponsor. Of course, Rev1 Ventures is a sponsor. Dan Bruno is back there from Rev1. So if you thank you to Rev1 who lets us come in here and set up shop and do this um, once a month. We've actually been doing this. This is the five-year anniversary of doing Startup Grind, which makes me feel really old, saying that I've been doing this for five years. Yeah, but I am old, so it's okay. Um, because if you're old, then you should feel old, I guess. Mm. So we have somebody who, who's been part of lots lot of, of transactions and funding deals and other um, sort of startup contracts and, and negotiations tonight. So please help me wel- welcome Lindsey Karastensel to the stage
2: thanks guys
1: so so i've got a cold so i'm going to be awesome. sucking on cough drops the entire time so hopefully i don't you know choke and gag and fall out of the chair it would it would make for an entertaining evening These are, like video right right exactly right <laughs> so, so see that it. would be good uh probably would go viral that way versus mm-hmm. us just having a conversation um are you in mourning over the bills
2: actually no no so <laughs> i'm born and raised in buffalo And the last time that the Buffalo Bills were in the playoffs, Yahoo was the search engine of choice, smartphones weren't a thing, text messaging didn't exist, you know, Facebook wasn't a thing. So 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 for me, I'm like, oh my gosh, we made it, like, I can die a happy human, and I didn't even care that we lost, like, I've never been so happy to have there be a loss. <laughs> I mean, the quarterback could have performed a little better, but it is what it is.
1: We're, 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 we're sort of winners. We're yes. sort of
2: winners, guys. We did it. you know. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm happy about it. I still wore my Bill shirt to work today, you know, whatever.
1: Awesome. So All right, I'll wait well.
2: 17 more years, and we'll be in it again. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then,
1: you know, maybe you'll win the playoff game. Maybe. At that go around. You know,
2: I didn't ask for that. I just wanted to make the playoffs. That was like... Chuck yes,
1: Lindsay and I learned um, a few months ago that we're both from uh, up, upstate New Yorkers originally. So uh, we've got that, that bond and that thing in common. Um, I, I also learned today that you were the first person to do high tea with the I- first IC Star cycle yeah. that, that was an outsider. Oh, okay. So Very how cool. did that come to be? Because I didn't know that. So thank you for doing oh. that, by the way.
2: Yeah, no problem. Um,
1: super cool. <laughs> So uh, how, how did you even become aware of IC Stars?
2: Um, well, Calvin in my office okay. is on the board. Yep. Um, but there was just an email that was sent out to probably everyone on the Rev1 listserv, I'm guessing. And it said, hey, if you're interested in participating and talking to this group, respond here. And I said, okay, I'm interested in talking to this group. I'm really big on giving back. Um, that's a huge tenant for me, and so I said, "Okay, here's an opportunity." You know, I had a lot of people who did not need to take me under their wing as I was coming up through the ranks, and they did, and I'm forever grateful. So in turn, I try to pay it forward and recommend everybody do. Did the you same. know
1: that you were the first outsider that did high tea?
2: I actually did not. No. Okay.
1: Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> Surprise. So, yeah. So that's super cool. Thanks again for doing that. Um, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. Um, So, I'm actually going to start from the bottom of the questions that I sent you.
2: I was so prepared for the first question. Oh, okay. So we have to we have to go in order. No, I'm fine. I
1: so um, (laughs) how because I think this is a fascinating. I think this is the most interesting question that I sent you. Okay. So. You, you are a partner at NCT Ventures, right? So you, you do the deals for NCT Ventures. If everybody doesn't know, NCT Ventures is a venture capital firm in town. Probably the longest standing operating venture capital firm in town.
2: Uh, technically speaking, yeah. I'd, I mean, I'd have to look up what the foundation dates of all of them are. But uh, we were originally formed, um, our first entity was formed in 2000. So we've been around for Quite a while.
1: Yeah, and I don't know that there's anybody else who's had who's operated continually over that period of time. Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm not sure.
1: Um, and then you have your own law firm, your yes. own boutique firm, yes. and then you own a couple of CrossFit gyms. Yes. So w- w- how is being an entrepreneur, how does that help you be more empathetic and to give better legal advice and to be a better startup early stage company lawyer
2: sure um so as an entrepreneur any of you who are entrepreneurs yourselves um you obviously you feel the pain you feel the love and you you feel the grind every day and and you know it's not always easy right i mean you get phone calls at five o'clock in the morning that your coach can't show up so someone's got to do it so usually that's going to give a shout-out to my husband standing in the back. Usually that's him who has to do that. <laughs> um, but you still have to figure it out, right? And you're faced with challenges every single day, big, small. How are you going to fund something? How are you going to smooth out cash flow? How are you going to continue to make people happy? How are you going to continue to be exciting to the, to the market, be it the gyms, the firm, NCT, whatever it is? And so, if nothing else, it kind of teaches me the plight of the balancing act that entrepreneurs have to face every day. They have to go, "Okay, well, I've got to really think about how do I focus on cash flow, smoothing that out because we've got a couple of big purchases coming up here, and the decisions that you have to make and you know even though I'm a lawyer by training, I'm the first person to probably make a very business based decision when I know because I understand the legal risks, right so it helps me kind of go, oh, look, I get why you're making that choice. Maybe I don't agree with it, <laughs> but I get it. So hopefully that answers it.
1: So of of the the multitude of things that you're involved in and, and that you're doing, um, what do you get the greatest love, what do you get the greatest satisfaction out of now?
2: Um, you know, that's really tough. Um, it ebbs and flows. Uh, you know, right now it's great to see everyone come into the gyms and they're super motivated because it's resolution season whether we want to admit that or not. Um, How many of those
1: people will be there in May?
2: Surprisingly in CrossFit a lot of them Um, because CrossFit tends to attract a different type of human being who's usually looking for something competitive they're looking for a community they've probably been watching CrossFit for a while and it's a little bit addictive right you come in and you think oh I can never do this thing, and then, you know, 10 days later, you're already doing that thing, and you're like, why can't I add 20 more pounds, 30 more pounds, 50 more pounds, whatever it is, and so people get a real high off of that. Um, CrossFit's
1: like like an exercise cult, right?
2: (laughs) You can call it that. (laughs) (laughs) We are friends who like to exercise fast together, supportively, Um, but yeah. And we will probably drop anything to hang out with one another. But, like, you could, you know, be some other random person who's like, hey, you want to hang out? I'm like, no, man, I'm, I'm tired. I can't. <laughs> for the CrossFit friends call, and you're like, yeah, I can go out at 2 a.m. Yeah, fine. I'll be there. Sure. Right. <laughs> are we going to exercise? <laughs> um, but anyway, right now that's super gratifying um, purely because you're watching people make a change in their lives. And so CrossFit for me is not actually about exercise, it's about what people learn from the struggle of exercise. It is about watching people, look. the look on their face is like, I can never do this, I can never deadlift 300 pounds, there's no way. And then after some work and some focus and some training, they do it and you watch them light up and they think, my gosh, like I did this amazing physical feat, how did I do that? Oh wait, if I can do that and it wasn't that hard, Why is it so hard to have a tough conversation at work? Why is it so hard to stand up for myself when I want something more? Why is it so hard to ask for something that I didn't think maybe I was deserving of? And so you watch this beautiful transition of people. And so that I get really excited about. Um, But naturally, I also get really excited about doing deals, too, because I like to help people chase their dreams. And so that's what I actually see my law practice as, be it at NCT or wherever else. I help people fund their dreams. They come up with an idea. They want to chase it. They want to chase it with everything they have. And either I'm getting them the funding via NCT, or I'm helping them document so that they can take on the funding. And that's pretty cool.
1: So why be involved in this? Why not just do one? <laughs> right? What's in you and what's not normal that <laughs> you, you, yeah. you, you want to be doing several things versus just one thing?
2: Um, My father would say it that I have a zest for life and 24 hours, I feel like I need to pack them all with something to do. Um, And I don't think it's necessarily that. I appreciate the diversity in every day. Um, I also function, you know, normal people don't really like stress. There's like also a red line of stress, which like might give you a heart attack. I like to function like right under that line. Okay. <laughs> at all times and I feel like I actually think function work do better when I'm right there is that really true
1: or is that just the story that you've told yourself over time to uh, be able to know, get comfortable uh, between with
2: me that? and my doctor no um uh I actually that is true I mean I think if you give me if you give me six months to do something it's not that I'm a procrastinator but I love the pressure like work is addicting to me if I could compare myself to someone, I'm like a sled dog. Like I like working and I like working hard. And I've said it before, like no one will outwork me. Like I take that as a point of pride and it's crazy and I'm not gonna do it forever cause it'll kill me. Uh, and I recognize that too, but yeah, that's why.
1: So was, was, was this a grand plan? How, how did you end up becoming an early stage company attorney and then becoming a partner at NCT? Um, was was this all the end game from the beginning?
2: No, 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 no. Um, so originally I was going to go to medical school, like all of us when we go to college, right? We're like, I'm going to go to medical school, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm well, do it.
1: <laughs> I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I was never going to go to medical school. <laughs>
2: No, but we all, like, I did good. I did real good in science. I'm going to medical school. No. Um, and I did do really well in science, except for lab. I really hated it. It turns out I like talking to people and interacting and not measuring to, you know, the ninth decimal place for something. And after breaking my 10,000th test tube, I was like, okay, I need to figure out a different life path here. because This is clearly not it. Um, and so, you know, I, I was like, all right, I'll go to law school. Like that, that seems good. That's doctor, lawyer, whatever. Doctor, lawyer, (laughs)
1: Indian chief, right? (laughs)
2: Um, And so, initially, when I was thinking lawyer, I was thinking, you know, big firm, that type of attorney. And I actually was thinking more along the lines of litigator. And then, as I got more into that and I did that, at a big firm, at a medium-sized firm, at a small firm, it turns out I am not wired to be a litigator. I am wired to be a transactional attorney. And for those of you who don't know the difference, you know, transactional attorneys are really more of like a collegial, cordial group. You know, I've done a ton of deals with Alex in the back, and <laughs> and I, I love doing deals with Alex. Like, we get on the phone, we chit-chat, you, you, we're all working towards the same goal. We're not trying to beat the hell out of each other and see who can get just a little bit more...
1: Oh, just beat, <laughs> just, just beat the hell out of Alex one time.
2: No, no. <laughs> um, you know, we're trying to work towards a common goal. And so when I started to figure that out more so, um, you know, I also realized, okay, I should probably be getting an MBA or figure something a different, a slightly different path out. Um, and then same way I ended up at participating in IC Stars, I ended up getting an interview with NCT. I responded to an email. <laughs> That was like, if you would like to be a venture capitalist, which I didn't know what that was, to be clear, when I applied. (laughs) Um, I was having a difficult time understanding the difference between someone who does private equity and a VC. Um, But it sounded cool. Yeah, and I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. Why not do this? Um, And I applied, and I did not get the analyst job that I applied for, but I got offered a totally different position, which I was way underqualified for, but I would tell you, I'm qualified for now. <laughs> At least I like to think so. That's what I told myself.
1: <laughs> so, as as you so you've seen a lot of deals. Yeah. So, as seeing those deals um, and and thinking about how entrepreneurs could better be prepared for a deal to mm-hmm. to go smoothly, mm-hmm. I think oftentimes they need to understand what how, how a, an investor is going to approach the deal. So what have you seen that entrepreneurs most sort of misunderstand about the way that a funding deal is going to go down and the way that an investor is going to view the deal in the terms and, and that founders are, are then sort of either not prepared for or caught off guard by?
2: Yeah, um, hmm. so I would tell you very consistently entrepreneurs have a very different Um, thought process in terms of how long it's gonna take to close the deal so one of the things you know entrepreneurs start raising money typically a little bit too late and then they start to back themselves into a corner when it's getting right down to the wire when they need to close that funding because they kind of have this impression that well if I present well and I you know give my pitch and the partners like me and then they look at my things and they like you know the market Well, then I should probably get money like at the end of the month. (laughs) Well, we just met you, and this is kind of going to be like a marriage for the next five years, so we're probably going to want to meet you like five more times to make sure you're not a loon. Uh, We're going to want to vet everything you just told us because, again, we just met you, and we have no idea if you're being honest or not. We we want to believe that you are, but we have to check. Um, And so there's this huge gap where they're like, oh, my gosh, I thought I was going to get funding at the end of the month, a self-imposed idea. When really it's gonna be like three you know three, four months later, after everything is said and done and the syndicate might be pulled together and whatever else, um I think another thing that <clears throat> entrepreneurs tend to undervalue is back of the house materials. when I say that, it's not just your legal stuff, but it's your cap table. like how organized are you? Do you have your h r stuff if you've got employees organized because People are going to review that. They're going to make sure that, you know, investors, when they're doing due diligence, it's about um, risk mitigation, and they're trying to price that risk in addition to pricing your deal. Um, And so they want to know, you know, do these people have it together? Are they telling me that there's five people on the cap table or there's 15 people on the cap table? Have they now told me there's both five and 15 people on the cap table and they're unsure? Um, And so they tend to underestimate and undervalue, um, making sure those things are correct and orderly. And so nothing is a bigger turnoff to an investor when you take like three weeks to compile things that you should be able to go like send, click. I mean, it should literally be that easy. <laughs> um, so I think that's, that's a big one. Um, and I guess other disconnect is, you know, we all see things on... TV and we look it up online and, you know, we're in the Midwest, you guys probably know this, but valuations are handled differently here than they are in Palo Alto. So um, if you want a Palo Alto valuation, go to Palo Alto. (laughs) If you want money from the Midwest, understand that you don't get to write your idea on a napkin, slide it across the table to someone and go, I'm worth $10 million because I had a thought bubble today. That's not realistic. So those I would say are the big, big ones. Um, you know, there's a litany of others, like, be coachable, you're not always right, even though you're the entrepreneur. (laughs) You know, other people who've been investing for 20 years probably know some things about investments. So listen to them. (laughs) But
1: how many that start sort of the due diligence process, make it out of the due diligence process, and that actually end up getting funded in your experience? um, Is there is there a ratio that you can sort of point to and you can sort of think of of due diligence to actually then getting into, you know, a term sheet maybe?
2: Yeah, um, you know, I'll, I'll just use NCT specifically. Um, we, we typically see about 500 proposals a year um, where people pitch us, be it through our website or otherwise. Um, this year was a highly active year. Uh, Because we also did what was called the Smart Cities Accelerator, for those of you who might be familiar. And so we had 10 deals (laughs) that happened just because of that. Um, But I think we invested in something like seven or eight other companies this year, or excuse me, 2017 also. So when you drill that down, you know, 500 to 8. I mean, and I would tell you 2x that get term sheets, and sometimes you just can't agree on terms. I mean, and that's okay. Key to negotiation, willingness to walk away. Take that home. (laughs) Um, And so if you don't feel like the deal is right on either side, walk away.
1: So you mentioned mentioned a syndicate. Mm -hmm. So for those that might not be aware, what does that term mean and how does it come into play (laughs) getting funding from an investor or a VC firm?
2: Yeah, so a syndicate is a group of investors who have come together to all invest in a deal on the same terms at substantially the same time. Um, And so a lot of times what happens is you'll have a lead investor, but that lead investor says, hey, I'm going to do a million dollars in your company, I'm going to invest a million dollars, but you also need to have another million dollars that you're closing alongside me. Um, And so that two million dollars coupled together, that would be the syndicate. Um, So sometimes the syndicate can drag on, meaning there's subsequent closes and more people come together. but. All in all, it's a group of investors who come together at the same time to do a deal at basically at the same time. Not everybody closes at the same time, but they try.
1: And typically there's someone who sort of leads <coughs> the round, right? Yeah. And is like bringing the syndicate together.
2: Yeah, because not everybody, not everybody has the same idea of what terms should be. Not everybody has the same idea of... Um, valuation of how many board seats should there be, all of these things. So someone has to kind of step in, into a role and say, hey, let me compile these things and get to a consensus and then communicate that with um, company. Now, sometimes all of the people just attack company council and say, we want this, we want that, and company council has to sort of be the go-between, but that's in the case if there's not a lead investor which, you know, bless those people's hearts because that's a lot of work. <laughs>
1: so if, um, if like, NCT, if NCT is going to lead around mm-hmm. and sort of bring the syndicate and bring the other investors together, how much more work does that mm-hmm. put on you and on the firm versus when you guys are joining others and somebody else is leading around? Uh, is that is that, like, 100x more work for you guys?
2: I would say... It's probably 3x more work, um, purely because you're not just having the conversation of, hey, company, can I have a board seat? You're saying, I would like a board seat, and then someone else who may or may not be investing the same amount of money as you is saying, I also want a board seat. So you either have to talk them off the ledge and say, like, you're crazy because you're investing a third of the amount of money I am, and you're not the lead investor, so no, you shouldn't have a board seat. Or you say, yeah, shoot, this company needs all the help it can get. Let's do two board seats, and... You have to figure all that kind of thing out. And I'm just using board seat as an example. There is a crazy, there's just a crazy number of terms that can be negotiated in any deal. Um, And so if you're the lead investor and you're kind of pooling and leading the charge on that, it is a lot more work. And I would tell you it's a lot more work, particularly on legal and maybe in our office, the person who's also the partner in charge of the deal. uh, and then, but if we're on the other side where we're just joining a syndicate and we're not the lead investor, shoot, that's easy. Like, unless the terms are just egregiously horribly wrong, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll sign. Yeah, looks good. Stamp. <laughs> and I'll just move it off off of my desk after I review it. So.
1: So, is there some percentage of, of investments that you guys are comfortable putting that mo- amount of effort into, sort of, be the lead versus those that you want to just you know, join and be participating in?
2: Um, I don't think we look at it on a percentage basis. We look at it more on a, you know, how excited are we about the deal basis? How excited are we? Do we have a really strong skill set in that company or in that field? Um, So you know, we have a handful of things that we try to focus on and like to think that we're pretty good at. Um, but if someone in the ecosystem, um, I'll I use, you know, if Drive is doing a deal and we feel that, say, Chris Olson is really strong at vetting a particular type of deal and he's saying, hey, do you in, want in on this? Then, you know, shoot, we'll, we'll do that. So we don't necessarily look at it as a percentage, um, but it is, you know, how passionate are we about the business, the entrepreneur, how much do we want to get the deal done? There's a laundry list of things.
1: How much exposure does an entrepreneur typically have to the syndicate coming together or is that does a lot of that happened behind the curtain and and they have very little exposure to it
2: oh no they i mean they have exposure to it because um you know there's some times where the investors are sort of just talking together and like hey i'm in a deal do you want in this deal yes no whatever Um, There's also the times where, you know, we might look at a deal and we're like, hey, we love this and we'll do up to a million dollars in it, but you've got to find another million. And we're busy, right? Like my job isn't go find other money for company that no one can sell a company like the company. And so they should be finding investors who want to come in to the deal. So I would say more often than not, investors are coming in through the company and becoming part of a syndicate as opposed to pure investor-to-investor communication. Not always, though.
1: (laughs) As you um, think about a a deal coming together, uh, you talked about it being sort of a three-to-five-month time frame typically.
2: Yeah. I mean, it could be faster than that. They've certainly, I mean, we've done deals in three weeks, you know. But go ahead. (laughs) And,
1: uh, and, and, And are those... So why would a deal happen in three weeks, for example? Um, what special circumstances would, would facilitate and allow a deal to happen in three weeks?
2: Organization. <laughs> a highly organized group. Um, high need, maybe, for capital. Um, you know, it's not necessarily our problem if you can or can't make payroll, though investors are somewhat sympathetic to it. If they like the deal, they like the team. They don't want to see the team fall apart. Um, Sometimes an investor might see an LOI, Letter of Intent, um, coming down the pipeline and say, well, shoot, like, I got to get in before the price tag on this accelerates. Um, Usually those are the factors, you know, when compiled together. Other things, you know, okay, people maybe are running up against a vacation, so you got to accelerate everything. You know, end of year, you know, you see a deal coming down the pipeline You gotta get it done before 1231 if you're trying to get it in this calendar year. So, it, I mean, it all depends. I hate to use that word because that's like what every attorney says. They're like, well, it depends. It depends on but, this and the other. But things.
1: these are all unique <laughs> transactions that yeah. are happening, right? Because not every company's the same. No. Not every company's in the in the same state, right? Even if even if they're all early stage, early stage is a very wide spectrum of yes. companies, depending on where they are with the product and where they are with the market and yeah. team building. And you know, we could go down a laundry list mm-hmm. of them being in different positions as companies, right? Yeah.
2: So I mean if you were gonna tell me like like Lindsay, line up the the ten factors, or five factors, that are going to help me get funded in three weeks. You know, Your due diligence is tight. You have a really good understanding of your unit economics that you can articulate. You have proof that people want to buy you. You have proof that, you know, ad money will grow. Um, you have know, a great team behind you. It's not just one entrepreneur or an entrepreneur and a part-timer. You know, you've got a team. You're really going to grow. Um, You know, those things, you add them together. And sometimes you just get an entrepreneur who's just dynamic and amazing. And you're like, oh, man, I don't want this person to... I don't want someone else to swoop up this deal. I want to do it. So if you have all those that kind of come together, maybe you can get a deal done super fast. But it all depends.
1: So we hear a lot about deal flow, Mm -hmm. right, and and that... VCs, you know, are are always concerned about deal flow, and and sometimes deal flow is good, and sometimes deal flow is bad, and and you can sort of talk about what deal flow means to a a VC firm, but um, it sounds like if you're looking, if NCT is looking at 500, you know, pitches and opportunities a year, the deal flow really isn't a problem necessarily, but maybe it's quality of deals right amongst those 500 right. because if the ratio is 500 to 7 or 8 typically right then that's not a great percentage of companies that you guys view as being investable
2: correct yeah and and sometimes it's just that the people who try to pitch us don't maybe understand what it is that we want to invest in or what we're looking to do you know on our website if you go to the very, very bottom, and you want to pitch us your next great idea because we're listening, click the little bubble and fill out the 10 answers to whatever we're asking. But, you know, if you're saying, hey, I need $30 million in three days, like, don't apply. (laughs) You know, Uh, if you are a restaurant, don't apply. Now, those aren't all the deals. Those are gross, easy examples. But, you know, um, all firms are different. We do not do biomedical. We do not do life sciences. We, we do healthcare IT, but I think people sometimes conflate, you know, biotech with healthcare IT. And, you know, we're not, we're just, we're not scientists. I mean, maybe I was sort of in a past lifetime. You but almost I, became a doctor. I almost was a doctor, but I'm not. <laughs> um, and so I think that's part of it. And part of it's just, you know, you get cool deal, great idea that makes a lot of sense, and the entrepreneur is just not up to par. Or sometimes you just really don't, I mean, investments are a marriage, right? You're going to be married for a minimum of five years, (laughs) usually. And sometimes you just don't want to get married to someone. I mean, we've all had that experience, I guess, right? So, you know, there's that too.
1: So during the due diligence process, how many of these sort of stumbling blocks present themselves? Right, where it's either personality, right, or it becomes clear through the due diligence process that th- a deal is not sort of in the offing because they're either not that responsive or what you ask for they don't come back with, right, or it's incomplete, um, or you just discover things that then make it not a deal that makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, I,
2: I would tell you. You know, we might look at 50 deals a year very, very seriously. Um, And when I say seriously, you know, run them down the rabbit hole of all the due diligence. So, you know, our due diligence list is like 130-something things that you need to provide. And some of it you don't have, and that's fine, and just say not applicable. Um, But, like, when I do my part of the due diligence, I'm kind of like a hunter, right? Like, my objective is to find the thing that's wrong. And then once I find the one thing that's wrong... I start peeling and peeling and peeling and peeling until I find all the 30 things that are wrong. And I'm not the only one who does that. That's just in my portion of it. But those of us who do the due diligence in the office, that's, you know, I have the legal due diligence, obviously. But, you know, the ones who do the the due diligence on the business model or the market landscape, I mean, they're doing the same thing. And so a lot of times things will fall apart there, you know, because you tell me, oh yeah, I have 10 clients and I've made a million dollars in top line revenue this year. And like, and I found out you have zero clients and like three people who signed a letter of intent. And maybe if you finish your beta and pilot test with them for six months, they might pay you a million dollars. Like those are, (laughs) those are very different things. (laughs) Um, And so that'll come out. And then sometimes you just, I mean, we had a deal. We thought the deal was really attractive, but like we could not get along with the entrepreneurs. Like, they would try to split the group and they would try to, you know, play good cop, bad cop, and, like, it's just not worth it. Like, just be an upstanding, normal person that you are (laughs) and be reasonable and cool, and it will be easier for you. Don't try to make it harder on yourself.
1: (laughs) Do you think that entrepreneurs are often given a lot of bad sort of advice around things like that of of how to sort of negotiate or play the game right that they think oh they read you know they read a a blog post somewhere or whatever right or they they hear a story that somebody did this and this is how they got funded and and so instead of just being sort of themselves and just being normal that that they they begin to sort of play a character or they're acting in a way that they think they're supposed to be acting to deal with you know uh, investors and attorneys
2: yeah. I mean, I would tell you it's not everyone. I mean, maybe 15 to 20% of people do that. And it's because maybe you're a first-time entrepreneur and you've read a bunch of blog posts. You don't have a lot of laps around the track in terms of how does an investment come together. So you're tra- they're trying to, like, posture, like they know more than they know. Um, so there's one part, you know, sometimes people do get bad advice. Sometimes people get too much advice, right? They go to every single person and every single person gives them something different, and they're just bouncing from topic to topic and not, you know, just going with what they know and what they do. And and you can see that quite clearly when someone can't pick a path of how they want to like work with you, talk with you, interact with you. Um, right. Every
1: conversation is like <laughs> a, a, a different sort of tone and tenor, yeah. right? Because yeah. they're, they're trying to sort of find the lane in which they want to conduct the conversation.
2: And, and it's challenging, right? I mean, because you don't know which human being you're going to get that day. And so no one really wants to deal with that. You kind of want to know, like, okay, you know, this entrepreneur is going to stand up for themselves. You know, they're not just going to accept anything that's thrown at them. But at the same time, they're not going to be unreasonable and unrealistic. But, yeah, they do get some really challenging advice, Um, you know. And there's folks in town and across the country. I'm not just going to say in town, across the country because, I mean, I'm licensed in multiple states. I interact all across the country who say that they do startup work you know, and whether it's a consultant or an attorney or an accountant or whatever it's going to be. But they don't really. Um, and so you really do, it, it, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have a responsibility to kind of vet the people that you're taking advice from. Um, because if someone's telling you, like, hey, you should do this, this, and this, because this is what I saw happen one time when I worked at Nationwide, in and, and I was in due diligence, like, Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, just so be cautious of that. Um, you know, be cautious of who you're saying is on your team, because sometimes they they might not be doing you the service that they you think that they're doing you.
1: So, you, you, NCT was involved. You mentioned the Smart City Accelerator, yeah. and so there were ten companies sort of in one fell swoop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, why why do it, and what did that mean for you guys? around doing that, um, and do you think there's more in the offing of those kinds of things moving forward?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, NCT, one of our core tenants for our our entire existence has been, you know, bringing venture to Columbus, accelerating venture in Columbus, um, keeping top talent in Columbus. And so for us, the Smart Cities Accelerator was a way to A, get in, with some really cool, exciting companies in a number of spaces that we feel like we add a lot of value, Um, you know, and and we did a million-dollar commitment, so $100,000 in 10 companies. Um, Some of the companies we actually invested more than that into. Um, And so, it was a great opportunity to be really on the ground floor of something really cool that could happen, a number of times more, I don't know. Um, and I don't know what NCT's involvement would be there. I, I can't speak to that right now. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a really wild ride and it was great to see these companies come in from across the globe, really, um, and bring their ideas here and try to implement them here and try to make this place, you know, we all say, oh, let's be the next Silicon Valley, let's be the next whatever like let's be Columbus, <laughs> you know, like let's be us. <laughs> and so we're, we're just gonna be Columbus with some of these companies doing really amazing things. So it was wild.
1: Was it easier from your perspective to do, to do those deals? Because I'm assuming that it was sort of one, one sort of deal structure for all 10 companies that were particip- participating unless you did additional deals and additional funding with some of the companies.
2: Yeah, so it sort of was like that. <laughs> um in
1: theory, that's the way it was supposed to work, right?
2: Yeah. We always joke at NCT like let's use the template. We've never done one deal that's the same as any other deal ever. So <laughs> So I had 10 different deals, um all substantially similar. I mean, the the percentages of equity that we took in the companies was it varied by stage of company cuz some of the companies that came in were hey, I need my initial funding to get my idea started. And some of the companies that came in, I mean, they've been churning for a long time and taking on, you know, some of them, $2 million, $5 million of investment. So, um, obviously, that involves a lot of work in making sure that your document complies with whatever these folks have put in place to date. Um, so, yeah, we had 10 investments happen in... Basically a three-day period because we didn't know who was going into the accelerator until the committee selected them and they were supposed to, you know, they basically got selected, I think, on the 5th or the 6th of September and then they started on the 11th. And so
1: so a deal a real a deal can really happen in three days.
2: I mean, yeah is what
1: we've really established. I
2: mean, I've done deals and you can I mean you can ask them, I've turned deals around in twelve hours. And so that's not the ideal. Like I don't ever want an entrepreneur to be like, go to NCT, Lindsay will flip your deal in twelve hours or less. Like, no. (laughs) Lindsay will quit her job. (laughs) Uh, so yeah, we did those ten investments in like three days. And then, in addition to that, we also had seven other, either new or follow-on investments occurring within the same seven-day period. So, it was really cool. And then I took three days off yeah, because was, I that, was like, "That was no. a fun week." <laughs> yeah. By the end of the week, I was like, "I just need a day or two. And they were like, "Why? <laughs> Use the template."
1: So, considering you had seven other deals happening at the same time, I don't, um, and I don't know if they have ever asked. Um, someone on the the funding side this before um is there do you see sort of any seasonality and sort of of timing things where you're looking at and you're doing more deals at another one time of the year than another um do you do you see that and have you experienced that
2: yeah certainly so um
1: and why is that if that's the case (laughs) vacations.
2: (laughs) Uh, That's my theory anyway. Um, So you see a good number of deals happen in the beginning of Q1. And usually those are holdovers from the previous Q4. Then you might have a little bit of a lull, but there's still kind of chaos occurring because it's tax season. So there's still a bunch of things that are going on. And then it starts to get nice out. And then you can't really find the investors necessarily to do the deals from, like, May 15th to August 15th, and it's freaking awesome. <laughs> because I get to, like, sleep and take my own vacations and um, catch up on all so the, the things s- that didn't happen. So the
1: starving entrepreneurs are, are, are going to starve yep. through the summer. you are
2: going to super starve during the summer. But, you know, there's usually a lot of events and stuff, uh, so you can get some free pizza, and whatnot, <laughs> you know. There's a lot of accelerators that happen during the summer, um, so there's that. But then it's funny people start to trickle in from vacation, and then all of a sudden it's corporate tax time on September 15th, and then like, can I swear? <laughs>
1: and then like, <laughs> yes, <and> then, <laughs> I've, I, I've only I've only I've been doing this for five years, and I've probably only cussed I don't know five thousand times. Oh,
2: okay, over great. That period of time. Great. So then like, shit hits the fan on September 15th because everyone goes. Holy hell, I set all these goals in the beginning of the year and I've got three months left to go. And then they just go gangbusters from, you know, October 1 till December 15th. And you see so many transactions. And I think Alex was even mentioning, like, I mean, he had a ton of transactions. I had, I don't even know how many transactions between October and December, just because everybody's trying to get things done. And that's also compounded by, hey, we've got to get certain investments off the books by 1231, or we need to take advantage of some sort of tax benefit, or we need a tax loss, so we need to get rid of this, or whatever. So tons of deals from October 15th, you know, October 1st to December 15th. I mean, I borderline, and my husband can attest to this, like, I get a little nutty during that time of the year. Like, I don't sleep. Like, <laughs> there's like you're working from, like, 6 a.m. to... You know, ten, and then you're finally like, my eyes are bleeding. I need to stop. So that's definitely the busiest. But this is also kind of a busy, but in a goal setting, a lot of like employee option pool setup type things now. That's
1: actually a really good segue to the next question. And hey. and this is the last question I'm going to ask, and then we'll turn it over to um, to the folks. If we've talked a lot about funding deals and transaction mm-hmm. deals, right around funding. What other kinds of, of things are entrepreneurs from a legal perspective, you know, struggling or sort of mostly unprepared for that you you, you help them with and you advise them with? And, and whether it's, you know, formation, right, or, or it's other things like, you know, options and sort of how to structure employment agreements and that sort of stuff, um, you know, do you see that you'd you know, like to call out specifically that you see a lot of entrepreneurs needing help with specifically?
2: Right. Um, I would say the most important thing um, that I see invest- or, excuse me entrepreneurs really needing a lot of guidance and help and what they struggle with is how they're actually going to interact with their partners. And so a lot of times, you know, entrepreneurs are faced with, do I spend... You know $5,000 and doing some legal documentation so that I know how the money is gonna flow and I know who owns what and I know who's gonna have what responsibilities and whatever whatever or do I take that $5,000 and I invest it in my my or my consultant or my marketing or my whatever and this organizational thing doesn't seem very important and you know, I'm not just saying this because I'm a lawyer, I'm an investor, I'm an owner of companies myself. Like This thing right here about how the money's gonna flow and who owns what and who does what could not be more important to how you run your business and how you get money out of it at the end of the day. Because I will tell you, people get funny with money and all of a sudden when success starts coming or an, an investor comes and says, hey, I'm really interested in this. All of a sudden, oh, I thought I owned 50% of this, not 40. I thought I I thought I thought owned all of it and you didn't want any of it anymore. I mean, I've seen countless friendships, families, whatever, wage war on each other because they didn't take care of this thing, you know, when they could have just, and, and it can be done pretty efficiently if you know what you want, you know, because you're not farting around trying to figure out all of these things. Like, if you have a general idea, write it down. You can amend it, you can change it, but, like, put something on paper so you know how you're going to get money out of this thing. <laughs> you know, don't just go, hey, here's 50 grand. Like, let me know how it works out. You know, <laughs> no one says that unless they're, like, your grandma. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and maybe, she's, maybe she wants her money back too. I don't know. She might want upside. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I think it's hard sometimes for entrepreneurs, and I know I've been there um, with companies that, that I've started. When when you don't have any money and there's nothing flowing through the company, you're not thinking about putting in that infrastructure for the day that there is money flowing through the company or money enough money through the flowing through the company that anybody's going to care about it, right? Yeah. Until the time that it it's, it's then happening, and then it's too late, right? Mm. Because then you're sort of caught up behind the eight ball that that you then. Um, have to struggle to put those things in place once money starts flowing. So you have to put this infrastructure in place before you need it, right? Which sort of seems out of alignment or counterintuitive or something
2: right I mean you don't build a house by slapping some walls together with duct tape and going I hope this puppy stays up like you lay a foundation and then you build the. I, be- <laughs> you
1: know? I, be- I, be- I built only one time like that but you know oh. it's,
2: well it was called
1: it was called my car oh. um yeah and how did it go yeah well I three uh, I lived that for three months so that oh. wasn't you know so well, that was a know. three months existence that was okay
2: but you survived I survived
1: so. right no, yeah it's okay Um, okay if you have a question Darren is in the back with a microphone he will get you a mic Um, so just raise your hand and then
0: he'll get you a mic so I have a question on everybody's favorite topic and that's legal terms
2: oh geez Uh, yeah so (laughs) what
0: what what do entrepreneurs need to know about what key terms are and what might make a deal fall apart in terms of how to what are the terms around economics and governance that people should need to know to interact with an investor and what do you see make kills the deal you said 2x of your deals get term sheets What's What are the terms that kill the deal?
2: Um, well, first and foremost, it's going to be... So you have economic terms and then you have like control terms. So your economic terms are really, you know, what is my... Understand the difference between pre and... I don't know what's happening there. <laughs> pre and post money valuation, okay? So pre-money valuation, um, and you can look this up, but... Pre-money valuation means before, pre-the money coming in to your company. Um, And so that's actually what's driving your share price, okay? Um, And then post-money valuation is the total value of your company, you know, pre-money valuation plus the money that came in. Um, And so you want to understand that term specifically because you want to know, um, you know, how much of my company am I really giving up? Right, So if you're saying, hey, I have a $9 million pre-money valuation and I'm taking on $1 million of investment, you have a $10 million post-money valuation, meaning you gave up 10% math. <laughs> so, um, you know, you need to understand that. and But also don't get caught up so much in, oh, my gosh, I gave up 10%. I gave up 20%. I gave up whatever it's going to be. I mean, obviously don't give up 99.99% of your company. But, you know, The other things you need to think about are what control provisions you also still hold. So I'm going to come back to economic terms, though, for a minute. You should understand what a liquidation preference is. You should understand what waterfall means. So waterfall is, you know, uh, our way of saying, like, how does the money flow through? If there's an exit event of $50 million and someone who invested... $25 million has a 2X liquidation preference before anyone else sees the money. The only person seeing the money is the person with the 2X liquidation preference. So make sure you're not disincentivizing, if that's where, yourself um, or the rest of your team by getting so far behind in the waterfall. Um, So you really should understand, too, what the waterfall looks like. So if you get a term sheet, you should really think about running what that waterfall looks like or have someone help you run that. So you can articulate, hey, yeah, that, that deal can work for me economically. Um, so those I would say, I mean, there's, a, there's others, but I think those are very, very important. Uh, you know, dividends. Do you have dividends? Do you have deferred dividends? Do you have dividends that are only issued if the common stock gets dividends? Um, you know, those are economic terms, too, because... If you have an accruing dividend into perpetuity until there's a liquidation event, and if that's sitting at 6 or 8%, which is pretty market standard, you basically have an 8% coupon that's running and running and running. And so that can grow pretty fast if you've been in holding an investment for five years. Um, so be aware of that. So let's talk about control terms, control terms that are important. Um, you know, how many seats are there on the board? Is the board weighted more heavily in terms of, Investor representation or is it you know founder representation? Is there? Um, or
1: outside repre- or, or representation, outside yeah, I mean, right? I, or
2: independent director representation like folks who are really big in a certain industry or very knowledgeable? Um, you know is there a requirement to have that you know are there? Requirements that you know even though there's only one investor board seat that investor board seat has to vote in the affirmative to do certain things because I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you see that and you let it go through, that investor now basically makes decisions, material decisions for your company. So if they don't like a deal to sell your company, even if you love it and it's your walkaway number, mm. you better get them on your team. So I would say those are important. Get
1: really good at selling. Yeah,
2: because otherwise you're going to keep working for a while. So I would say those are important. Um, But yeah, those I would say understanding the economic terms and understanding um, control terms, there's a lot of really good information out there um, online, surprisingly enough, Um, and if you want to message me, I actually teach courses on this, (laughs) so I can also send that to you. (laughs) Who else had a question?
0: So you've got a wide variety of companies that you've invested in. What would you consider your sweet spot uh, focus? And of the latest fund that you raised of thirty-four million, how much of that is spent?
2: Yeah. Um, so I would say, in terms of our focus, our focus really has shifted to things that are energy sector related, healthcare, IT related. Um, we have some AI interest. Um, we have one company that's in blockchain, and we're starting to have a shift in that direction more so now. Um, realistically, we're opportunistic too. So if we see a deal, the deal makes sense. It's in a spot where we feel like we can add some sort of value, meaning we can connect them with new sellers, vendors, you know, customers, whatever it's going to be. And we think that the economic terms make sense for us, we might do that too. Of the 34 and change million, uh, we are just under 70% allocated. So at this point in time, we are strongly considering what it looks like to have a fund three. And we're also um, currently talking about an opportunity fund, which is specifically for follow-on investments in existing companies. That we've done already does NCT typically take uh, a control situation or is it uh, outright passive or anything between and is there a geographic bias I know you indicated that you'd like to see companies started in in Columbus but is that mandatory yeah so um, all great questions Um so we used to have an extreme bias towards Ohio, you know, we still feel like venture is a contact sport. We think companies do better when we're able to kind of knock on their door and say like, What the hell are you doing? Like get it together. <laughs> or, hey, great job. See, we also do that too, add boys. Um but
1: (laughs) interesting you know you started with the negative connotation though that's
2: my role I mean when I walk through the office like you should see people like oh she's coming they might as well like hide under their desk she she showed up today
1: we must be in trouble we're
2: in trouble we're clearly in trouble Um, we used to have much more of a bias but now we have branched out more so so we do have still a strong concentration in Ohio Um, we also have companies a handful of them now in Detroit Chicago, Seattle, a couple in New York, and a couple that have offices in multiple places. So we've kind of shifted because that's just what the market has, has dictated that we do. There's a lot of great deal flow here, but there's also... We used to be the only game in town for the most part, right? And then a lot of people started to show up. So we didn't have to be the only person investing in town, and some people just beat us to the punch, and, you know, it is what it is. Um... Do we take control positions or not? So this is also a shift. So we used to take massive control positions, like 51% or greater in companies. And we'd actually come in and we'd serve as the manager of these companies and we'd do their legal work, i.e., I would do their legal work, and then (laughs) we would have, you know, an accountant and our company accountant would do their bookkeeping and all that kind of stuff. And um, that's very taxing on the system, right? So you can only do so many of those effectively. and so we started to really watch and think about, and, and we made a conscious decision to say, "Let's find really strong management teams that you know kind of understand and buy into what we think and how a company should accelerate, and and they have strong business models, they understand their unit economics." And so we've started to go more in that range. We do have some companies that we have one, two, three, four um, percent. It's tough to be in that, you know. When you're in the 1% to 2%, it's a truly passive investment. Like, it is what it is. When you're in this, like, 5 to 15%, like, you're the investor and you're like, I have 15%, you should listen to me. But, like, if you don't have any control rights, the entrepreneur is like, I don't care. <laughs> so um, we tend to prefer, you know, how can we get to 25% of your company? Even if we don't do that from the onset, we might say, okay, well, we'll do some, we'll do a million dollars now for X, and we want the right but not the obligation to buy another however many percent it gets us to that 25% because we feel at least comfortable there. Like maybe someone sort of has to listen to us if we have something intelligent to say, which we always do. So,
1: and, or do you guys make investments with, with the idea of, uh, of always making follow on investments uh, or it, uh, is that your ex- expectation that if you make an investment, you're going to have to put more money into the company at some point.
2: Um, So we usually, I mean, we have what is called a holdback strategy. So the holdback strategy, you know, you invest a portion of the money and you hold back an equivalent amount, basically one-to-one for follow-on investments. We enter some investments knowing that we are not going to follow on to them, but we want to participate if the thing is going to win. We enter some going, we want to get in on the ground floor here, and then, you know, we want to participate in your... B round and your C round and the exit or whatever it's going to be. So we, we systematically sort of march through it that way. Okay.
1: Can you give an example of what like a, an ideal entrepreneur team, leadership team looks like? Or sure. one that you've had a great experience with?
2: Sure. Um, so it's usually pretty great to have...
1: I will say that Joe... Joe from Prior Auth Now yeah. did a startup grant with me. It's probably been a year ago now, and he actually sang. So if if, oh. if you want to like call out a team like the Prior Auth Now team, I'm just gonna give a shout out to Joe because he he sang Whitney Houston's oh um, "I Will Always Love You" here, oh. and it's on it's on tape and everything. It was it terrible. I'm it not was terrible. By the for way,
2: because you, you will all leave right now. <laughs>
1: I was not challenging you to sing, but if you'd like to sing a couple notes of your favorite (laughs) song, you know, please feel free. Um, Yeah. So Joe has a soft spot because he totally played along and embarrassed himself and sang a little bit of Whitney.
2: No. um, Yeah. Joe's team is great, but you know, Joe, I mean, Joe's team, to your point, big picture visionary person who has this like larger than life idea of what's going to happen with the company. They've got an operations person who's kind of seasoned. I don't want to call them a gray hair, but sometimes that's what we call them. Like, do they have any gray hair on their team? Because everybody's like, oh, we want a young entrepreneur team. Like, I don't necessarily want a team of 15, 18-year-olds because they haven't had any laps around the life track, okay? And so they don't know really anything. And maybe they're super savvy. You do want some youth on your team, but it's not mandatory. Um, So you want a strong visionary, strong operations person, Tech person on your team is a really attractive thing, or at least the person who can bridge the gap between visionary and coder, because that's a special person who speaks that language in there. Okay, and so you want to see that, and then you know you want to see maybe a couple people who are, um, you know, grinding it out, making things happen day to day. I don't want to like utility players. Maybe they're gonna kind of block and tackle through the crap that no one else wants to do, but they're like, yeah, I'm in a startup and I make no money, but I love it. (laughs) And I live in my mom's basement. No, (laughs) I mean, but that, that really, the, the, the first three are the, the big ones. Um, you know,
1: Is, is prior entrepreneurial experience. How much does that factor into it?
2: Um, you know, it is important, but Some folks have what we call intrapreneurial experience, meaning they were tasked with doing something within a large corporation or starting a new division or something like that. Those skills translate pretty well. Um, You know, is it important? Yeah. Is it a requirement? Not necessarily. It's always helpful because I'm like, hey, this person, they did a couple of companies they got their brow beat in, but they learned a lot of lessons, that's helpful. Um, You know, sometimes it's actually more challenging to get someone who came off a really big win because they either A, go, hey, I'm going to apply all the exact same things that I did last time because it worked last time under that set of facts, so clearly it's going to work the same way under this different set of facts, and that doesn't always translate, so it's a little tricky and then sometimes when someone's had a big win they get a little big for their britches too which i appreciate look like i i like a little bravado in anybody like you did some good crap like be proud of that but like also know that you're coming to people asking for money for a reason so <laughs> Yes, I'm
1: laughing because um, yes, I had that very experience. Um, Yeah, we 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 had some success and we built a pretty good company, and then with a completely different product and a completely different market, we tried to apply the exact same principles. Yeah, and 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 the hubris and the ego of that, in retrospect, is massive. It is, Um, but we couldn't help ourselves either because by the time we realized what we were doing, it was too late, and it failed failed miserably. And you know, we you know we just went into a depression for six months, but. Um, no, I'm joking about that part. It was, it was, it was really only like three weeks. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've lived it right. Where just because you've had some success doesn't mean, doesn't rubber stamp you that the next one's going to work.
2: Right. And, and, and people just, they just do it. Like you, like if you, if that's how you did. It. I mean, you might not have even known that you were necessarily doing. You're like, these the, are the things right. I did before. So in I'm the doing moment, them again. we did not
1: have conscious awareness that we were applying the same principles mm-hmm. to a different product in a different market and expecting the same results. Yeah. In the moment, we didn't have that awareness until yeah. we realized it wasn't working, and then by that time, it was too late.
2: Yeah. So, what other questions do you have?
0: How do you feel about M and A advisory firms?
2: Um. Like any good legal answer, it depends. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> or or when an entrepreneur has one behind their company advising them and they approach um, you.
2: Yeah, so I've seen it go really well, and I've seen it be really, really annoying. And so the times where it goes well, um, the M&A advisory group um, is experienced in the sector, is not overly pushy isn't directly communicating with the investor in lieu of an in, in entrepreneur communicating with investor. Um, that's the typical pattern when that goes well. And, and the folks know and understand, they're just providing general good advice to the entrepreneur. Um, typically though, I would tell you most early, because we're more early stage, so most early stage deals I'm kind of like, why do you have an M&A advisory firm right now? Um, Because a lot of them are still trying to figure out their business model and perfecting that. And so it's kind of like, wow, you're giving up some pretty decent upside to get things done. I've seen it go poorly when the entrepreneurs, they they just kind of hand the reins over to the M&A advisory firm, and the M&A folks are negotiating the deal on behalf of the entrepreneurs and The M&A folks have been very incentivized to get the deal done and efficiently and with, you know, more capital and whatever. And sometimes it annoys the hell out of the investor because the investor's like, I said the terms were this, not that. I said I'm going to close on this day, not then. Stop pushing. And I, like, I mean, I've even said to a company before, like, if your person calls me one more time, I'm not doing this deal. Like, and so, like, but that's—I would say—it doesn't happen that often. But it can work if the if the group is cognizant of the environment that they're in.
1: So, how important is it for an entrepreneur and, and an early stage company to have really good advisors on their side? So, like you know, Alex, you know, from Dickinson right? If somebody's right working with Alex, right, and and you and you find that out, then you know at least they're getting reasonable yes. <laughs> representation, right? Yeah. And and when you get to the point of, of negotiating things that that you're going to be working with somebody who's giving them, you know, um, expertise and professional advice that that is that is valid.
2: Yeah, I mean, and,
1: how, I, and, and I'm assuming that's important for you guys right yeah. sort of looking at it is the entrepreneur on their own, do they have good advisors or does it appear like they've got shitty advisors?
2: Yeah, I mean, who are the advisors? Are the advisors folks that You know, not to say we've heard of before, but like we would at least recognize, like, either the company that they came from, the industry that they, any of those things, you know, just putting a bunch of family members on or whatever and probably a bad plan. Um, But yeah, I mean, when I see someone who says, hey, you know, I'm going to connect you with Alex Brown, he's my attorney, like, I almost in a way rejoice because I love working with Alex. (laughs) So I'm like, yay, this isn't going to be hostile. Like, We'll have some good conversation, we'll get a deal done efficiently. And I know that they're not gonna get advice that's insane. And so I have done deals, and I'm sure other other folks in the room have too, where have I n I I've I've done a lot of deals. <laughs> and so
1: You've seen your sheriff crazy.
2: I've seen my sheriff crazy, but I've also I also know who does the deals. Okay. And so it's not to say that you can't get into the deals or you can't jump to a firm and start a practice to do the deals. Um, but you know, if someone comes to me and says, Hey, I'm using X, Y, Z firm. And I'm like, I, I legitimately have no idea if they've ever done a startup deal. And then when that starts to like, you start to see that pretty quickly because the, the terms you apply in a, Corporate public transaction are not the same that you apply in a startup deal. You don't have the same mindset. You don't have. There's a, a different level of cadence. There's a different level of rigidity, and there's you know less of that, and less rigidity, and maybe a, a, a startup deal. And you got to be a little more fluid. You got to move with it. And oh, I've seen some deals go real bad purely because of who is advising the other side because they're just getting crazy things that they send back over.
1: Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I, I <laughs> ran into a, um, somebody a couple months ago that they, and I said, do you have legal counsel? And they said, yeah. And I said, who is it? And they said, well, it's my, it's my estate attorney. And I said, yeah. the guy that like put like your will together and like put a trust in place. And, and, and the person said, yeah. And I said, I think you need somebody else advising you on this because
2: it's th- different. Th- there's no,
1: th- right. There's no ex- there's no experience in going through the process for right. somebody who's an estate attorney going yeah. through the startup funding investment contract process. Yeah. and
2: I mean, I know people get comfortable because they, you know, maybe use someone for an estate or they got a divorce and they use someone, but like I would never touch a divorce case, not just because it's so messy and crazy, but because I don't do that. Like, and I think that other folks should apply that, too. I mean, I think people should be honest and say, I don't do corporate work. Or, I, like, I don't litigate. I don't litigate. Like, someone comes to me and says, I want to sue so-and-so. And I say, I've got 25 references. Which one do you want? <laughs> you know? Um, and I think people just need to be honest about that.
1: Please help me thank Lindsay in coming and joining us tonight.
0: listening to this startup grind columbus event podcast we will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights thanks again to our lead partners awh and rev1 ventures visit startupgrind.com forward slash columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones until next time keep grinding